Welcome back to Sleepy in Seattle. I'm uh, here <laughs> after a long night. I'm, I'm going to be sleeping this podcast. It's uh, impetus is on you to carry this conversation. We have, we have some very exciting films. Raya, oh God, man, I, uh, I quit. You know, it's it's a good thing that you chose this week, the week we finally talk about uh, a more modern film, for me to take over the podcast to just talk for extra lengths, because everyone knows that I'm the one who's got the lockdown here on, on anything that came out recently. <laughs> um, there's, uh, there's a little bit of news. We're going to go over the Golden Globes. We have, we have some documentary. We have one documentary, perhaps, a uh, singular one, documentary. <laughs> Uh, one construction of a documentary film. Although, uh, all films are really documentaries, wouldn't you say? Really, they're all documenting something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're documenting that time and place. They're documenting the production of a film, really, in this, it, it, but in like the strict parameters of only the things that made it to the screen. So, all films are documentary. Um, so, we'll have some documentaries today, uh, because all films are... Um, and uh, Raya, uh, another documentary. Another of course, it's documentary, an animated documentary, yes. though. Yeah. The rare animated one. Um, Disney are great documentarians of our time. Um, <laughs> where should we start? Uh, was there another thing? Yeah, I think there was another thing. But uh, if you want to just cut to the movies, I don't know if you want to hear about my. Oh, uh... your goats! <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is a documentary of your experience with goats. <laughs> I actually did take some videos, so I could piece together a, a documentary of my experience at the uh, Port, uh, Portland Goat Parties, uh, as, as they were called. <laughs> is that what it's called? The Portland Goat yeah. Party? Portland Goat Parties was the uh, uh, place I, I looked at. I, I had an interest in... Because uh, it was a long time ago. How it came up was that uh, one day, back when I was living uh, on uh, Whidbey Island... My mom took me with her to a farm on the south end just to go visit some baby goats. We held some baby goats, and it was a very nice time. If you never hold a baby goat, it's it's delightful, and they're they're wonderful creatures. And so I was like, hmm, I would like to do that again, because uh, that was just me and my mom. I didn't get to bring my fiancé with me that time, so I secretly planned it. I just kind of Googled, are there any farms I can visit You know, in the Portland this area? This just occurred and to you one uh, weekend morning that you just wanted she, to hold a goat. Well, she happened to, like, my mom brought it up to okay. me in a phone call again. She's like, oh, you remember when we did that? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I haven't held yeah, a goat like for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I get that feeling, too. <laughs> Every few weeks, I think about how I haven't held a goat for a while. <laughs> well, I went and uh, looked it up, and they happened to be this this place that did, did this. Just, a, you know, a farm, and they had goats and chickens and stuff. And, you know, you could just show up and pay them $10, you know. To touch uh, their goats. For myself. Yeah, yeah, and chickens. There were chickens too, and I got a. I, I managed to r- run around for about ten minutes and finally got a hold of a chicken. Chickens are fast. They don't like to. <laughs> they don't like people really. They they, they made like you the, chase them down. Oh, he said like like because I remember there was a little kid that came up and asked him. He's like, you know, can I hold a chicken? He's like, yeah, if you can catch one, go right ahead. The the guy who ran the farm. He's super nice. Uh, you know, he was he's really helpful. He t- told us about things. Uh, you know, like. With the goats, for example, like one of the things I, I learned is that they don't have like any top teeth in their in the front of their jaw. <laughs> yeah. So they they use their their tongues to bring in the food and put it in their back jaws and chew it down. So like there's not too bad a chance of a goat biting you really. Like you can stick your fingers all around their face and uh, they they unless you like really try and put it in their mouth, they're not going to chomp down on you. 
which makes eat, feeding them very easy. <laughs> my dad also lived on Whidbey for a very short time in my life, um, and I spent like a summer up there, and uh, we had chickens. I named them Bebop and Rocksteady after the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> um, I'd play with them, and I'd always try to catch them, but uh, eventually Bebop attacked my head, and I was running around <laughs> for like five minutes with the chicken on my head, like a, a Link to the Past type thing, like a, like a Zelda trying to knock off all these that's, chickens. Um, that's funny. So that's my. I love that. Did you did you throw any like off a cliff? Oh no, that's the pigs that that you pick up in Zelda and throw. Oh no, I didn't throw any off the cliff, but uh, <laughs> I think we did get rid of them after they viciously attacked my head. I was like bleeding from the head. And... Oh, so that's just, that's just yeah. Chickens are, are, are a little scary. Uh, that's why I'm kind of surprised I was able to get a hold of one without getting pecked. <laughs> yeah, if you're four or five, and um, you know, you named them after after these characters that are kind of endearing and. <laughs> Well, aren't Bebop and Rocksteady, like, the bad guys yeah. in the Turtles? And the, yeah, so no wonder they attacked you. And they're kind of like punks, too, right? Like, they look like 70s yeah. punks in their aesthetics. <laughs> there were some punk-ass chickens I should have thrown them off the cliff. <laughs> that's, that's actually funny. There must be a string of, like, you know, uh, pop culture-themed, you know, uh, pets or whatever, like, naming them after, because they had these big, giant, like, you know, uh, dogs that they had on the farm as well, and they were named... Star Lord and Gamora, <laughs> and I'm guessing your your nephews must have named them that. I bet or your grandkids or something. Those are good you didn't, dog you didn't names. pick that name. <laughs> they were huge, huge fucking dogs. Was the goat named? There was a bunch of names for the ghosts, but they were you know they were like mundane, like regular people names, like, like Josie and, and stuff. <laughs> Josie and Beezlebub. <laughs> yeah. We're actually we we're really lucky because we happened to get there, and they uh, unexpectedly had a goat that was born just that morning. Uh, all, all of the other goats were, were somewhat older. Like, even the, the younger uh, kids, you couldn't really pick up. They were still kind of hefty. They were, like, they weighed about as much as a, a large dog did. Like, even I was like, ugh, this, you know, I, I don't know if I could pick up this goat. Even though they said you could pick up the goats. I'm like, eh, I don't know. But the baby one, it was only five hours old, and, and my fiancé got a hold of him before the mother started, like, yammering at us to give her her baby back. Um Speaking of uh, goats, you want to talk about the greatest of all time, Disney animated pictures? <laughs> Great, greatest of all time, at least according to someone, I hear. Someone must believe it, and it might be my daughter. Um, yeah, that's what it sounds like. You just put up a very, very nice, heartfelt review. Another uh, follow-up letter to, to your daughter and your Disney uh, movie-going experiences here. I realize that's the and... only way to get my family to read my content anymore is to make it about Ezra. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of them will share it. Uh, it's worked out well for the website this week. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and, you know, people responded to it a lot more, it seems like, and I, I definitely encourage that because, you know, who... Uh, I don't imagine there's a lot of clamor for our, uh, you know, uh, you know, an, another review, like straight critical review of this Disney movie, like having that more personal touch, even if it is missing a little bit more of like actual description of the film. Yeah. I think it's fine because it's all about how the movie makes you feel and that personal experience and that stuff is going to be I think it's going to resonate more with people, honestly. <laughs> And there's there's something to it too where it's a Disney movie and it's the first big release of the year. Every website will run something. Uh, I mean, it's pretty typical of Disney too. I mean, it's not like it's going to surprise anyone in a technical description of it. Um, I mean, I could go into it a bit. It's kind of following along the lineage that they've created that uh, a young woman character, which they're distancing now from princesses. Um, we're not quite calling her princess. Um, Kelly Marie Tran, of course, getting more work from Disney after Star Wars and 
Uh, nice to see her and Aquafina playing off each other. Aquafina plays a dragon. Uh, it's about, uh, I would say, I think it's like Southwest Asian cultures. Um, it's a place called Kamadra, which is like a combination of uh, things like Laos and uh, some surrounding uh, countries around there. Uh, so we're kind of combining them and each tribe has like their interest in like this dragon gem and they all come for it and uh it breaks so the dragons come out and turn everyone to stone so uh kelly marie trans character uh, raya she has to go on a journey through each of these villages and she collects all these partners and um it's a fun kid's journey i, I mean i see why ezra could be easily hooked like it's structured so succinctly and uh, it has a kind of fun like a apocalypse after everyone's turned to stone you go out into the desert she's riding her uh armadillo around um <laughs> and, and it's like a cool like steampunk thing like she has like a holster on it like it becomes a horse uh, uh so some of these visuals are pretty neat um and raya i mean we don't see many of this kind of um asian character on screen represented that often you know we'll see like uh china of course or we'll see some japan but uh uh, some of these uh, southern parts, um, these other territories all combined into one. I think it gives a lot of cultural opportunities, although I, I don't think it explores distinctly any really interesting part of a culture. I mean, it is Disney still, so it's very surface level and it's not getting into any uh, traditions or anything, I think. Uh, but, but it does have some cultural value there in representation. And uh, it is fun. I mean, there's no songs. I, I think Disney should have songs. <laughs> you think it should have been a musical? It doesn't look like a musical, like like the kind of film that would, uh, you know, benefit from songs necessarily on the surface. It looks way more like actiony, adventure oriented kind of thing. Yeah. You know, she's got like a sword she's wielding on all the posters. But I guess Mulan pulled off the same kind of thing with songs. It then had a dragon too. Until uh, until the new one where Chi until yeah. <laughs> China was like, we don't really want you to do songs anymore, Disney. So Disney's like, okay, China, we won't make songs in Mulan. So I don't know if it's the same kind of thing where it's like about representation and them not wanting to offend is, with songs. But is Disney moving away from like musicals in general? I'm trying to think like of the last big like Frozen. It, it was Frozen yeah. two. Like I, I'm guessing that was like the unless I'm just totally forgetting something. Even something like Coco, I guess, which would have made sense as a musical maybe. But you know, like yeah, Pixar could they kind of do that their thing, I mean, Pixar has, doesn't really do musicals yeah. either. So um, it's. It feels like they're probably moving away from it, but I won't be surprised when Moana Two is full of a. Uh, oh, that's true. Have, like, Moana as well. Lin Manuel Miranda songs in it again. Are they doing? Are they doing a two? Yeah, they are. That's their next one. Mm. Will be Moana Two. Mm. So. Mm. I, don't, I don't like that, especially since I don't think it's the same team. Like, what didn't? Uh, think um, this is Oscar, the Moana Oscar team that did Raya. I believe that's the team. So yeah, it's probably their B Because it, it was it was uh, Clements and Musker. That was their last film. I think they're done working together. You know the legendary Disney team. Uh, and yeah, so if they're not coming back, I don't know. I'm that's I'm even less confident with that. Yeah, than... I mean I'm sure there's someone out there that can make it still, but uh, I don't know. Like uh, Frozen yeah. Two kind of showed uh, that it was kind of like an endpoint for like what these Disney musicals have become, where there's like songs that develop the plot but really they're just in there because you need songs because there were earworms from the first movie like it feels like an end state for like a disney musical but uh i, I mean raya is is perfectly okay i i don't have any major problems with it. i think there's very little characterization 
uh, beyond some like funny quirky Disney lines that are like, oh, you know, have a few laughs on your adventure. Um, not many of the side characters really stick. There's one that's a baby, which is more just like Disney, you know, um, <laughs> Disneyfying itself with you know like a little baby character that doesn't really mean anything. Um, not all of the tribes that they go to. Of course, they create more like diverse landscapes and uh, a few aesthetics, but. I mean, the animation looks a little off, too. Like, Aquafina's looks maybe offensive sometimes. Uh, it's the way it over-exaggerates her face looks a little awkward to me. Um, there's there's more awkwardness in the animation, too. I just... Uh, these realistic-looking people in these weird landscapes, I, I don't know. It's kind of off-putting still. Yeah, there's, there's something, again, like, I'm, I'm looking at some of the pictures here, and it's it's hard for me to tell, you know? Like, it does feel like it's all from the same kind of house here but even less so like refined in terms of the facial animation and such like again we're just all working towards this you know singular uh style you know of homogeny uh which is is always kind of frustrating and been like the singular you know main problem with disney films for uh quite a period of time still and again this like uh i, I don't know if i can you know if, if i'm in a position to say so but in terms of like the story representation like at uh if it's not representing something you know more you know sincerely uh then it kind of comes across as hollow and you know that's what all of you know disney's like kind of gearing towards it feels more like it could come across more like virtual virtue signaling sure uh, yeah yeah if if it's not like if there's not like a genuine force you know of, of uh behind it like you've got representation to a certain extent here but you know uh are you are you really representing a culture here particularly if like it's a mishmash of of different ones and it's a fantasy setting and stuff yeah you know yeah. Uh, is it a cop-out to take four or five cultures and not to give any of them real service i, I don't know it feels sort of like that it, it sounds like you're like the film for you at least is just like really like i don't know forgettable yeah. like a noteworthy i've seen it four times now and i mean i don't have really yeah, <laughs> i've seen the ezra's seen it at least six so i mean there's there's something to it it's fine um but but i mean i don't have anything really outstanding to say about uh, my experience of watching the movie three times this week uh, it, it's fine uh there's it's pretty concerning if after three times you really don't have much to say about it like <laughs> raya yeah i mean it's not as good as moana so i went through with ezra and we talked about all the disney films she's like i think it's a I get, I'm like, what do you think it is out of 10? She's like, 20 out of 10. So I'm like, uh, so what <laughs> Disney movie do you like it more than? And I went down the list with her. I'm like, Moana, no. Uh, Frozen, no. Frozen 2, no. Um, so we went down every Disney movie. Eventually she got to Snow White. She's like, yeah, it's better than Snow White. Um, so, uh, it's... so, okay, so we're just getting a feel for her scale then. Yeah. So like, t like 20 is like still kind of like barely ahead 20s here. mid i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> 20 is that she had uh the best time because she's really wanted to go to the theater with me for a long time uh she talks often about like going to the place with the popcorn and watching the movies in the big seats the big leather chairs and um so i think for her to see like advertisements for something something really coming up that i've been showing her for a while like i did with like frozen 2 her to build up this anticipation and to finally have an event where she's like, oh, I see this a week before my friends do, you know, like there's something special mm -hmm. about that to her, that uh, it was like an experience of going out. Like we did get popcorn for like the first time in a year and uh, we did kind of make it a movie night in a way. So I think that was so special That's to her that the movie hardly matters. 
Right. Again, like, I, you know, I think I've said this before about other things. It's it's not always the movie itself, but the experience, the environment in which you're watching it, the discovery. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times the theater itself is what does that. But, you know, conversely, like a home setup and, you know, the kind of discovery can as well, especially if you take efforts to make it special. You know, for, for a kid, that's really when the movie can feel magical. It's, you know... It's rarer to as an adult to find some an experience that really truly like transports you like that and feels like something completely special and, and new and, and otherworldly. Even. So even though I think it's very average and like pretty base for a Disney movie, I think that part of my review where it's Ezra kind of vocalizing uh, her feelings mm-hmm. is like maybe it is a very strong recommendation for a kid. You know, I, I think critics don't always hit the nail on the head with a kids movie. Um, because I watch what Ezra watches, I don't think every critic would look at My Little Pony and say this is the most cohesive show that every kid should be watching, and it's the thing she attaches to. I mean, it's friendship. She she understands these very basic concepts that she likes. Yeah, and it's and there's definitely like all kinds of barriers for us as adults, you know, to, to uh, not understanding or not connecting with a certain thing, or like you know, we'll see the the more structural issues, like being a lot more versed in the actual language of things, when really like. You know, as a kid, if just a couple things work for you, then that can really excel. And I think we have that experience, too. There's plenty of films where I'm like, I know this is kind of a piece of shit, but, you know, there's lots of... I like this guy. I like this character, and I like what this does. And, yeah, you know, I, I'm willing to ignore the sometimes rest. Sometimes it's like us with the Western. Like, we feel something badass about a character. And, and she's that way with these these girl... Not princesses anymore, but warriors. Um, she, she sees that this isn't just a girl waiting in a castle for a boy to come save her. Like... This is a girl going out and doing an adventure without any romantic interest at all. Um, so I think there are some things to kind of applaud there that are uh, at least representation and for her, a strong message that, you know, women are front and center and one she hasn't seen before, honestly. So that's cool for Ezra. Yeah, it's it's a uh, great to hear. Uh, in terms of it resonating, you know, I'm, I'm it's unfortunate that it didn't. I just don't think it's a good movie. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it 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 goes so many places and it's so distracted by itself. But uh, yeah, none of the form or really function of Moana in there. Yeah, well, that's that's all right. Yeah, uh, good, I guess it. the only problem is that you'll probably be watching it another ten times before the month is yeah. out. I wonder when the screener runs out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what else did we have? There was uh, there was some news this week. Uh, did we or should we go? In, let's do your document documentary here. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so because of my farm escapades <laughs> this week, I didn't actually sit down and watch a, a new one like like fresh in my mind. But I do have one that I've been meaning to talk about. This one that's been in my mind uh, since that I watched slightly before we started this. Uh, it's about three weeks ago, and actually I I don't know that. Many people have heard of this documentary. Like it's it's got less than like a hundred checks on IMDb, and like maybe only about that much on a uh, Letterboxd. Yeah, like no, not even ninety two people oh, have shit. logged it on on Letterboxd. So this might be kind of a rarity. It's called um, the Lost City of Cecil B. DeMille from twenty sixteen. I thought it was going to be a documentary. You go into the goat farm with that many views on it. Um. <laughs> No, I didn't. I don't have it quite edited yet. Uh, I got to get my distribution figured out before. <laughs> How was it? Uh, tell me about uh, uh, Cecil B. DeMille first. So, so it's interesting. So, I guess, uh, yeah, let's let's contextualize who this person is here. Cecil B. DeMille was a very, very big uh, filmmaker in, in uh, Hollywood from uh, kind of the early twenties, like late uh, teens, to up through the the fifties, uh, and he mainly uh, did a lot of 
big, huge biblical epics. That was like kind of his stamp trademark thing. He was the kind of, uh, you know, uh, trademark uh, Hollywood uh, autocrat, you know, with the big boots and everything and the megaphone. That was all him. Like, he was that image to a T. And in uh, 1923 was when he did his first adaptation of the Ten Commandments. They they made all these big sets, you know, kind of replicating the, the sphinxes and, you know, the exteriors, the temples and stuff of uh, Egypt out in a desert in California in Guadalupe. And uh, after they were done, because he was so protective of his brand and this particular thing, he didn't want people reusing the sets, uh, he just buried it in the desert. He buried all of the, the stuff out in the, in the sands there. And so in the 1980s, uh, this uh, filmmaker, Peter Brosnan, you know, hears about this and sets out on a quest to uncover, unearth this, you know, Egyptian city that's buried in California, which is a pretty crazy. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, adventure, you know, to, to set out upon. And so, you know, he hires these... Uh, uh, students of archaeology who get to like you know i mean like isn't that a once in a lifetime opportunity you're literally excavating you know egyptian artifacts mm-hmm. you know in california which is which is kind of crazy and stuff but uh it's this really interesting odyssey because there's so many like barriers he has to go through you know through the city and stuff and he keeps getting stopped in the film uh, itself is getting like halted from release because of all this interference and bureaucracy going on and he literally like only gets a few chances in his lifetime like the, the whole thing you know chronicles from the 1980s through modern you know day when it's in the 2010s when he's actually finishing up this documentary mm-hmm. here and there's only a few times where he's actually allowed to go out in there and actually search around in the sand for like these pieces of, of plaster that are buried you know underneath there and everything and throughout the documentary, he kind of uh, intercuts between the story of Cecil B. DeMille and the productions of the original Ten Commandments and then his remake in the 1950s when, you know, he was able to. That's the famous one with Charlton Heston and stuff where they actually did go and film in Egypt and, and such. It was his last big film. Um, and and it's a really interesting story, I think, in a piece of history and, and this idea of how the archaeology kind of overlaps with uh, this this piece of you know important film history here uh these these big titanic characters it's kind of our own you know uh mythic legend and and i think it really plays into that idea of this same kind of uh hollywood mythos that is built up with you know titanic characters like demille and and these interesting like kind of secret things that you know or these forgotten things uh that happen in these productions and stuff and, and how that you know interprets and just the general story itself i think the structure of the overlapping between the narratives it can kind of be jarring especially in the beginning because it's like not laid out very clearly that he's going to be jumping back and forth so constantly but you get a sense of the rhythm then pretty easy and it's a very enjoyable experience and i think very informative and interesting at least it you know it appealed to me because <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in all this uh hollywood history crap and and the fact that that so many little people had seen it i thought was very surprising because it is such an interesting uh story and i think a lot of people would be interested in the subject looks like only you and your fiance of everyone i know has even seen it (laughs) oh yeah definitely like this is this is like already looking at my stats for letterbox this is the like least popular film i've seen this year uh it's it's really low there (laughs) we've got four want to watch and then only you guys have seen it 
Um, it's good. I, I definitely uh, recommend it. I think it's it's very interesting. The story, uh, you know, uh, not only the story that you learn about with uh, DeMille and stuff and his struggles, which is very informative, but also <laughs> just the story of the uncovering and all the roadblocks they come up with with the city of Guadalupe and stuff, I think is its own interesting, you know, kind of trial. And eventually they do have a the triumph, but like they don't uncover the whole thing necessarily because you know they're, they're only given like a fraction of time with which you can you know play around in the desert and i guess that's the other thing like, like i'm always confused about like why doesn't the city want to get the shit out of the sand right. <laughs> there's like a ton of it all around it's just like debris fucking like everywhere and it's it's not even that uncovered yeah. like it's not buried deep you know it's really just like underneath the surface yeah, a why lot don't of it they and it's just do... about locating it all um <laughs> Yeah, even Demille, I don't know very much about him. I mean, a huge blind spot there in that I've only seen The Greatest Show uh, and didn't like it at all. So, uh, well, a lot of people don't. I, I don't it's like famously the one of liked it. It was well, it's that that was, and that's the kind of ironic thing. Greatest Show on Earth came out in '54, yeah. and that was like, uh, oh shit, we need to give Demille an Oscar. He's been like a huge titan in Hollywood for so long. Uh, here you go, best best picture, best director. Oh my god, it wasn't '54; it was '52. Yeah. I remember because High Noon was that year, and it, it should have fucking won. But it really um, should have. That was a horrible. Just movie. A Oh, and it's crazy because just like a few years later, he comes out with the remake of the Ten Commandments, which is like this huge, fucking famous film. You know, Titanic. Everyone knows about the parting of the Red Sea and everything, and you know, so much iconography, and it gets so much play. You know, on TV and stuff around the holidays, and all that. So you know, <laughs> and it just kind of goes to show you how the Oscars often, like you know, they they just it's it's really just like a, a political game, and they just hand it out to reward certain people, and even if it's not necessarily deserved for that time, and then. Somebody's bound to make something later. Should we talk about that now? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you want, I mean. So a lot of awards, it feels like they're making up for what they've not done for a while, right? <laughs> like, um, mm-hmm. in award shows, it is a political game of making up to kind of um, both directors, actors, and even groups of people that you've long ignored. <laughs> yeah. There was the... There was an article on LA Times the last week that was like a really disparaging look at like the dark, shadowy cabal of, of the Hollywood foreign press, uh, which is a fucked up institution of like 80 journalists that are very, in, I'd say exclusive, the opposite of inclusive. Um, they're anti-inclusive. They haven't had any black members for 20 years, was one of the big revelations. Um, so there's no diversity, really, in the Hollywood foreign press. It's people who have residence in around Hollywood, but have written for foreign magazines in the last... They've written, like, four pieces for foreign magazines in the last year. So that's not even, like, a working journalist. I mean, I mean we're not always paid and we put out like four articles a week so um i don't see why uh that should be a high bar the bigger bar is that they go to hollywood parties and they kind of schmooze with like the hollywood people so um hollywood foreign press never really a trusted establishment to begin with and um i think they always know that i think in their show they play into their lack of credential um they get people like amy poehler tina fey or ricky gervais that could really dig into like the core of how shadowy and, and fucked up this actual institution is. I think uh, the only reason it exists is because it's like a, a top-rated show for NBC that's not a sports show. It's one of their best every year. Um, it's been dwindling year by year, but um, of course all cable shows are, so everything but the Super Bowl is dwindling. So um, we really have to look at that in like the prism of whether TV is still doing okay, which it's not. I think maybe give these to Netflix one year, let them... Uh, let them try to run it and see. But uh, you know, 
I, I think that's an interesting thing, like totally unrelated, uh, but, you know, it made me think about this just for a second. We keep talking about, like, in the age of streaming and how cinemas are dying and whatnot, but nobody's talking about how television is dying, like, conversely, how cable TV is, is going by the wayside, you know, largely, like, you know, and that, that, that medium is, is going away. Like, we keep hearing things about cinema going away and, like, you know, with digital overtaking and, you know, the immediate, uh, you know satisfaction of like you know having it at your home and stuff but really i think i think tv is way more in danger of death you know I now so. that i think about yeah. it uh, i i i'm about to not have cable anymore i'm about to take it away I've, i haven't touched the cable remote in like fucking years now yeah. um i mean i don't have it I, I don't have any need for it i get a hockey package each year uh i watch hockey and uh uh, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the stuff, especially like sports, you can do through various streaming services as well. Like they, they hook you up with that. You just, you know, pay in and get that. So yeah. I think it's interesting that we keep kind of hanging around the cinema thing when really it's it's TV is the way that's going. Cinemas you know, aren't going go to actually go away. There will always be movies in cinemas. It might be much fewer screens, but uh, I think that's like an established difference. Whereas streaming solves a problem that cable always had, which is like an access problem, right? As long as as long as there's one you know repertory theater still showing yeah. like old movies, cinema isn't dead. I don't think you could say the same for TV. Like you need a whole system to keep <laughs> that thing up upright. It's hard because like, you need twenty four hours a day, right, to keep it where it is. I guess we could go back to like the you know twelve hour program or whatever, and then at like midnight, you know, they 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 turn on the American flag again. <laughs> you know, do you ever have that? Yeah. I always saw that on TV, but I ne- uh, like like in old movies and stuff, like where it comes, like you get this guy falling asleep on the chair and stuff, and and the flag is waving. They're playing the song. There were, I never saw. There that. were definitely channels. Yeah, it, was, it was past my time. <laughs> there were definitely channels that went off at a certain hour for me, but I never got like the American flag. They'd always go to. Um, it would always be infomercials, right? As soon as like a uh, uh, nighttime would come, it's 10 p.m. Every channel is infomercial now. You think about it. That's another weird like strand of jingoism in our country that we don't think about really like nobody no no other country did that right what, what like just went straight like, to commercials all night like when no no like when when french tv turned off or whatever they didn't play the marseillaise <laughs> and you know show the french flag waving or you whatever that, that shit didn't happen <laughs> right because it would be weird but some for some reason it's not here we just accept that shit we're like yeah that seems yeah. normal um i think despite all that i think Golden Globes will like stay like a fixation for NBC as long as people have cable. I mean, I think it will take the death of TV for Golden Globes to go away formally. Um, th- just too many right. people watch it. I watched it. I mean, I think it's it's fun. I can't deny that. I can't deny it's fun to watch the mess of this thing. You think? Do you think it's better? I guess the question is: Is it more enjoyable to watch that or the Oscars? Because I think that's always the competition. Like nobody cares necessarily about the Golden Globes yeah. when when you get the Oscars coming up or whatnot. They'd rather watch that. That seems like the bigger ceremony but, again, even though it's equally as much of a kind of you know inside politics thing. Yeah, there's still a very diverse membership of the Oscars that's been expanding every year into like foreign territories and getting people with. Uh, more diverse resumes uh, whereas the golden globes has been locked at 80 people for 20 years right like uh, it doesn't change um and if it does it, it changes the same way it's the same people coming in that left so i mean it's not you know it's not a moving institution so uh, they they decided to shift their categories around i think because they needed to solve some of the problems that they had to answer to um so their first three awards were all black um black actors and black director they even shifted uh i think it uh before for coco there was a multi-director thing and they only awarded one 
but for Soul, they decided they had to award both directors so they could get the black director some screen time. So uh, they're, they're definitely shifting some things and like in a panic That's, trying to solve a problem. I just seem kind of behind times because it's not like we haven't been through that. Like the Oscars had to go through that before. Yeah. Like I think famously, you know, like Joel Joel Cohen always took the credit as director and Ethan as writer on films, even though they both did them together because that's how the guilds were, were set up mm-hmm. that you can only be credited for for one. Which you know, <laughs> and eventually that they they fixed that. But you know, it's uh, Golden Globes is still behind. It sounds you like. can tell it was very last minute because Kent Powers, who did um, uh, what is it, the one uh, Regina King, the the. Re- what is it? The the room, um, the one with uh, Muhammad Ali and all the actors in. It. Oh, oh, the room where it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something no, like that. that no, was no, my no, subtitle no, no, for no. It. One night, Miami. My bad. No, that's a that's a Hamilton song. I was thinking of. That was my subtitle <laughs> for the review. <laughs> that's, that's right. It. That's why. That's why I'm we thinking it. You're stuck you're... on the subtitle. Um, so it was uh, the Regina King movie. Yeah, um, one night in Miami, and then Pixar's Soul. Kent Powers is a is a great stage writer, so he did both of those, and. Uh, it was clear they thought of this the last five hours because they had a recorded video of him. They didn't even get him on the call. Like they had the play button at the bottom and like the timestamp as the video played through on <laughs> Kemp Powers. And that's what they televised on. Like they had someone holding up a tablet with Kemp Powers on it <laughs> playing a video. Oh my God. That's how rushed uh, the production was. Everything was a Zoom call, so uh, during commercial breaks, they had actors like, oh, talking to each other, like like they're on like the Brady Bunch. Like it was very awkward <laughs> silences. Thank God, I think it was uh, Sarah. That's where that that's where that clip of Fincher taking the drinks came from, right? I know you. Po- I saw you posted that. That, that was during the awards. Every time he lost an award, he took a shot. So, or how many? How many shots? I gotta know. I think all I of them. Know. Um, yeah <laughs> i think he was also toasting people but i think more generally it's fun to play into that as like a idea that fincher's just uh taking shots on his losses maybe toasting his dad maybe toasting the guys who are uh winning um which is uh more interesting yeah we had daniel kaluuya up there we had a uh, chadwick boseman i think like the moment of the ceremony was uh boseman's late widow uh giving a really beautiful speech I actually cried during it um uh, just so beautiful it- um just is late window re- redundant or does that give the impression that she's dead as well uh, i shouldn't have done that then um so his widow <laughs> uh, uh, yeah there you go <laughs> so his widow was up there just a really beautiful speech about uh what he would want to do to inspire people and how he'd want to change like the conversation about these things um and a lot of good speeches uh golden globes confusingly is tv and movies so Shit's creek one mm-hmm. and dan levy got up and actually called them out on their bullshit and said that he hopes that next year it reflects actual diversity in these guilds and in hollywood so uh, a lot of people making good cracks at it um and i think i think it was tina fey at the beginning said that uh of course, it doesn't have diversity. Like they, they source their awards from a French McDonald's down the street or something. So, uh, it's you know they realize the low prestige and people on stage make cracks about them. I think that kind of levels it out, and we we take it as a stupid experience that it is. Mm-hmm. But it needs to get better. Well, you know, so. Yeah. Well, there's always room to you know. Uh... You know, just because uh, we're we're condemning their their current practices or whatnot doesn't mean that we don't find the potential in them improving, and we we encourage that. You know, we, we see the same thing with uh, all sorts of awards. You know, and, and as long as we, as as the audience and viewers and participants, you know, continue to put pressure on them to be better, then those changes, incremental as they may be, will occur. 
you know, and we'll make those steps of progress that are necessary for having a more balanced and representative, uh, you know, awards. I think ultimately it's good that the conversation isn't about like, oh, they picked the wrong guys. It's about let's get some diverse voices in here and do better next year. Um, Because I think Mm. they chose mostly the right things, like uh, some very questionable ones, like I Care A Lot, which I really hated on Netflix, and uh, (laughs) uh, Billie Holiday and the United States, which is getting... Billie Holiday versus the United States, Yeah, it's getting awful reviews, and... uh, Oh, no. I'm glad response. I skipped. I considered reviewing it because of, uh, you know, like per- personal interest in like holiday Me too. and such. But <laughs> I'm like, eh, uh, I don't know. I, I wasn't that concerned. I, I'm sure the versus the United States, you're like, oh shit, it's a court drama. I'm no better that. Right. Um, I mean, it's getting mixed reviews. It could be fine, but I didn't think it's unlikely that it would win an award, so I was surprised that it did. Um, <laughs> that and I care a lot were strikes that i didn't really understand but uh, other than that i'm glad the conversation was about diversity and making this show better and not so much like oh they didn't pick my favorite movie because in some way they, they did end up with the right response i mean as close as i could say to the seattle film critic they got to nomadland eventually so um we didn't plan it around that of course it, it just happened that way that that we're covering what they chose as well we were building to it. We announced it, like, last week yeah. at the end of the episode, as we've been doing lately. So, that was before it won, and now we're recording, what, like, a, a day or two yeah. after? I think it's two days now since they the, it won, which is cool. But also, I think, you know, uh, you know, people could have predicted that. Like, what, what, what was it up against? I don't even remember. I don't know anymore. <laughs> I don't know what last <laughs> year was. I assume First Cow should have won every award, and I know it's not included in any of them. So, I'm, I'm really begging these independent spirit awards to really do the right thing i think i think the problem with first cow is again is that it's that early release like it came out in like like so, well it had a really wonky release too like what it came out in like it came out in like february July, uh, nationally yeah it came out like in february originally for yeah. like all the screeners and stuff and then they held off on it for a while and you couldn't put out your review until like july and then even like by then like it, you know that's still early for like an awards film to remain in the conversation yeah, and there's, so. there's no push behind it right like uh, they didn't send out uh wind screens for our car or anything for first cow so um mm-hmm. you know We'll get to that in a little bit. That's true. Bit. You got that big nomad land windscreen. Uh, let's take a break and get into that weird stuff. Okay, it sounds good. <laughs> So how do you feel about uh, getting swag for uh, PR reasons? I mean, not like movie swag specifically, but uh, say like just like peripheral things that uh, aren't really related to like why you would need to evaluate a movie. Uh, well, it, it is kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have as much personal experience as you do with it. Like you've got mountains of, of crap now that, uh, you know, various screeners and other you know, like stuff, and I'm sure you had like similar experiences when you reviewed video. Oh, games it was worse. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the video game stuff you get was so obtuse and yeah, video gamey that you you didn't want it on your shelves. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I guess the the immediate problem is just being inundated with crap that you don't need anymore. I mean, like, it's already hard enough not to just... Like, for us as, as a movie, I think, aficionados, like, we're, you know, inclined to buy shit that's just going to clutter our house. Yeah. Movie posters, DVDs, you know, anything, memorabilia, whatever. We already have way too much of that shit. And so now, you know, getting sent stuff and weird, like, just bizarre like you know innocuous things that are branded with the the film now uh it, it just takes up space and you don't know what to do with it like what are you gonna do like if you get shit you don't need you're just gonna go drop it off at the local goodwill or something yeah i don't know like i i suppose that's what i have to do with it all um i i guess and, and then who's gonna buy that at the goodwill they're gonna be like what the hell is this promotional thing you know like, it's like definitely like a market right like if i saw like the other side of the windscreener i'd be like oh fuck i'm looking for, i've been looking for that ever since um so there there are ones I, I i'm after you could you could probably make a lot of money selling that on like ebay or something like the, uh if you didn't destroy it already. i've also been searching for like the under the skin uh screener that was out there way back then uh, so there there is a market and it's just say yeah, oh, and it's the same thing with, like, older films. Like, they had promotional stuff that they would give away, like, at early screenings and stuff, you know, that they they would do. Uh, one of the things that my, my fiancé bought me was, like, a booklet that they gave at a screening of a Preston Sturges film, uh, which is super cool. Uh, yeah. And uh, usually a lot of that stuff is, like, dirt cheap because there really isn't, like, actually a market <laughs> for it. It's just, and especially, like, if it's a film that's not significant. But, you know, there's, like, a huge market in, like, lobby cards and stuff that they used to do. So I think there's a place for it but uh at a certain point it crosses kind of a line in terms of how relevant it, and you know what purpose and it potentially serves like... it's offensive to the themes of the movie i mean uh talking about nomadland um, something well i didn't receive this one so i don't want to like talk about something i didn't receive truly but they sent like amazon mock boxes full of food and groceries oh. to some of the people in the press, we we definitely have to talk about the Amazon angle yeah, of things in the in the movie because that's a that's a whole yeah. thing. But yeah, um, that hearing that that makes it kind of even yeah, worse. So I didn't get that part of it. I know like Irishmen, they sent out like uh, not Irishmen, they sent out like wines for one of the movies. Um, I I received last year a, a couple things that I liked. Uh, my favorite one was just a like a uh, missing link guy, which was just a little stand up. Like sometimes subtle is really good. Something that's, that folds that's away. Cool. Um, I, I like like I so I mean there there are things that I would like uh, if they sent me a cow for first cow I'd be all about that <laughs> yeah the the other angle with it the other issue I guess is the idea that this could be misconstrued as kind of like review bribery and I think it is in a way right like I mean it is bribery yeah. in a way like you know who like it's just short of sending you like cash inside the screener. <laughs> You know, or something I'm like sure that. I'm sure someone was so impressed by it that they, you know, it might have, you know, sub. We can't talk about what. Obviously, they're not like, oh, I'm gonna change my review up a score, but they were like, subconsciously, maybe I like this movie a lot more. They have a physical reminder. It's definitely. Right? There's definitely a little bit of palm greasing that just comes. Like, again, when, when people give you stuff, you know, it's supposed to make you inherently more, you know, friendly to, to them or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, that's just that's just like a natural aspect of that. And so in a way, it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a smart aspect <laughs> of your marketing. But it's also very like, kind of dirty dealing. I mean, the day we decided to do this podcast, I, I texted you. I was like, oh, fuck. Because <laughs> I received a six-foot... <laughs> um, windscreen from my car with nomadland written inside it which i i drive a prius so my car is half the size of this thing 
<laughs> I wouldn't even try to put it in there. I, I'd feel embarrassed to even look at it in there. Um, maybe during the summertime it would be useful, but I don't want to like advertise that I'm like in the movie business when I'm not in my car. So. They they should have sent you a two-gallon bucket instead for your Prius. <laughs> yeah, or, or if I'm tall, you know, larger bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so th- there's definitely an angle. Well, I guess the, the windscreener kind of makes yeah, sense for it. It's thematic. like, oh, for your, unique. for your nomad vehicle. <laughs> Nobody ever sent me a windscreen for my car before. So in some way, I kind of want to hold on to it, but uh, they also sent me, like, an extra small shirt. So, you know, maybe that will fit Ezra one day. It's 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 very odd, I guess. Just, just a very kind of odd thing that you don't know necessarily what to do with. It. And again, such a big item. They, what are you going to store? They also sent me an actual license plate with Nomadland on it, um, which is the one thing I kind of <sighs> like. But uh, you know, you can hang that up. I guess that would be a good like. Wall That's the thing. only thing I'm keeping. So put that thanks, up. Nomadland. I guess, I guess the idea. I don't know. I guess the idea with the windscreen is that like they hope that you'll actually use it, and that will promote the film <laughs> when you like. Hashtag go, van go life. Places. Yeah, uh, it's. I don't know. I kind of, kind of makes sense, but at the same time, like I feel like your promotional budget could be used better yeah. elsewhere. I mean, they definitely kept it in our mind and kept sending us stuff throughout the year. So, like, I mean, I was thinking of Nomadland. Obviously, it resulted a win. Uh, they sent this after our awards came out, so um, it didn't influence that. I guess tying back, tying back into the awards conversation, that's like kind of the more interesting thing uh, I think in all of this is like because awards are not really about you know prestige and what deserves it it's really about winning this gives us the opportunity to promote the film more it's another way of promotion so we put money into this so that we can hopefully get that win then there's more you know made up prestige attached to it more people will see the film will make more money so it's like trying to get returns on that and that business aspect of it i think is kind of like the more interesting aspect like once you kind of understand that about like oscars and golden globes and stuff that it's all really just about this is an opportunity to get the movie more distribution, more seats, you know, more money, really, and to make a bigger profit off of this. They're television us. shows, also. I think we have to remember that they're the, some of the highest rated television shows, and they're sinking in ratings. So they want to celebrate more popular culture than they ever have, which means going against possibly the better films of the year. Uh, so I think we just need to understand that they're trying to get viewers to. I mean, uh, they're not going to celebrate First Cow because that won't make money. Right. Oh, and again, it's about how much the the you know uh, the company can afford to put into promotion. Again, sometimes they put more money into the promotion of the film than the film itself. Yeah, I mean that definitely happens. I could see that. So sometimes, sometimes it pays off. Sometimes <laughs> you don't make any money because you spend all this time on promotion and it didn't pay right. off. There's definitely parts where like the marketing budget of some of these films is greater than some of the films that won't get mentioned because they're small and have none. So. Mm-hmm. It's it's all it's it's very interesting and again it's you know how the the distribution you know and the promotion dictates what is popular what is being discussed far more than the actual quality of films themselves yeah. it's a very weird like kind of backward system but it makes sense when you consider that that's how you you vocalize and get the word out about various films something does get me like inherently excited about like this this prestige behind Nomadland. Um, it would have been, I think, conventional in the 80s for this kind of uh, road movie without, you know, it's set in real America. It's not set in, like, outer space or a made-up portion of America like most modern films, like, that are a facsimile of, like, a small-town America or something. It's, like, set in multiple real locations throughout the U.S. Like, this is a grounded well, mer- movie set in reality, which we don't have that often anymore. 
one one of the key things about it and that gives it that kind of pseudo documentary feel is not not just how like the setting and everything settings and everything are real but the, the people are real like these are real nomads like, like besides aside from act like francis mcdormand and the the one other guy uh what's his name here i should know off my top of my head his name is uh david uh Stra- dave dave his character's name is dave <laughs> <laughs> uh they're they're the only actors in the film everyone else uh except for i'm assuming like her sister and stuff later in the mm-hmm. film uh, are, are like actual people, real nomads living, you know, out on the road, and these are like their actual experiences they're describing and stuff, which is, uh, you know, d- it does give it that much more grounded, real, you know, uh, pertinent feeling, and I think that's such a, a huge strength of the film, and it really lends that credibility to to their pr- plight. Even like I had to fill out, of course, like supporting actors, and I thought it was so interesting that I even put like some of these in those positions because. Um, for me, it's like I look at something like Under the Skin, which is like my favorite movie, right? And it it does right. a lot of this. It's just pulling people off the road and putting them in the movie, like with uh, seven cameras in the car, right? So like that was like very early example I think of playing with this more modern form of that. I know a lot of movies have done it in the past, and then we have uh, sure. movies like the last year, like um, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is bringing in actors but putting them in positions that seem like they were a documentary. So you take actors, you pay them, but then you allow them to exist in space, and you call that a documentary. But in some way, Nomadland, I think, is closer to a documentary form than actually Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is a fake bar. Like, I, I think these are real lives. <laughs> they are. I mean, they, they definitely are, and that's uh, something that lends, again, like I said, so much credibility here. Uh, you know, and it's really easy, I think, to, to fall in love with some of the supporting people, even in just kind of the fleeting moments you, you get with yeah. them. Uh, I particularly liked the, the rapport between Frances McDormand and the one uh, lady, uh, Linda May. Uh, no, 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 that one was really, she was really great, Linda too, May, yeah. of course. That that one was kind of heart, heartbreaking <laughs> to kind of see her as well. But Linda May, she she had a lot of spirit I to her. I put Swanky and uh, Linda May in my supporting actresses. I love them both. I think... Uh, both both great choices for sure and i think it's great that they're atypical in a way i think fern is also atypical of a hollywood performance from a leading lady it it's another fantastic contribution from uh francis mcdormand i think she's uh always so you know, definitely one of the one of the the top actresses of today for sure maybe the best uh you know and i i appreciate her willingness to immerse herself in such uh, situations i know that she like actually like worked at a lot of these places like she actually lived out in the van for yeah. a while until like it just became kind of unbearable <laughs> like you know and that's the thing is like like it, there's that kind of interesting balance of actors where it's like you i admire ones who are willing to commit fully but at the same time like an actor should also just act yeah. you know they'll like go this, back to their know, lives like, you know, in hollywood after right i mean Right, so like you know, uh, so there's a certain point where it's like I don't know. There's kind of like I'm on both sides of it here. It's like yeah, you know, is it really acting at that point if you're just doing the thing? Yeah. But also, you know, I, I admire the commitment to try and immerse yourself so completely as to you know to do that and give it the most authentic uh, role possible. Yeah, I mean there there are some actors that just become so immersed, and I think McDormand is. We don't see that as much from women actors. Not to make any like a gendered statements just that they don't get that opportunity to play those lived in roles that are so central on the screen that they get to actually live the characters lives so. 
Well, on part of it is that we, you know, we still over glamorize a lot of actresses and yeah. roles. You know, even though we are moving away from that a lot more and we're making good steps in progress, uh, this is a, a rarer occasion for something like this, as opposed to like your Christian Bale, who's going to lose, you know, twenty, you know, or fifty pounds or whatever, or gain a bunch to look like you know, Dick Cheney or whatever he's doing now. My favorite tweet from Golden Globes, uh, Amanda Seyfried in her uh, red uh, dress, <laughs> uh, inspired, obviously, by Rosebud the Sled. So, awesome work by a Twitter journalist this week. Uh, I, I agree that they've been so over-glamorized that they don't really get to play, like, these hardcore character parts that are really lived-in deep experiences. Uh, awesome for... Horror, and I think McDormand is in my top two list. I think I think I have Benoche and uh, Dorman, McDormand, and in my mm -hmm. top two. I think she's making a lot of great choices. I'll be interested to see you again awards wise because she just won like with her last role, the the Oscar with the uh, three billboards yeah. outside Ebbing, Missouri, which which, which is a film I really you liked. liked it more than me. I think. Uh, so. I think I gotta watch it again. It's been it's been I haven't seen it since the theater, but <laughs> I imagine I like it a lot. But this uh, I I feel like this is another like great choice for her in terms of a, a role to take on, and and she does really like she commands uh, the entire film and it centers around her and is carried by it because uh, and 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 you need something like that with a film like this because I think the threads connecting everything is a little more absent, uh, yeah. which was. One of my like few problems with the movies is that uh, I said in the reviewer type of letterbox that the film itself is very nomadic because it's just like kind of jumping from place to place. Um, and it's kind of I think it's part of a phenomenon with a lot more like modern filmmaking where it's like this very expedited storytelling where scenes just play like you, you just get through them very quickly, move on to the next one and just like like kind of rushing through a lot of it, which is not inherently bad i don't think there's lots of films where that style of storytelling takes place but i don't think there was like a s single shot that lasted more than or like even more than like 40 seconds throughout the entire film at the very least it's meant to be fractured it's not like a plot driven movie yeah. of course i mean De definitely that's, not that's uh, the thing i think you're talking about with like modern movies is that we're moving away from uh plot 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 and you know bad guy needs motivation we have to feel good or bad for him and he gets what he wants in the end like that doesn't happen here so, so some stories, and again, that's not to say that this type of storytelling hasn't existed, but I think this, the style, like I said, of like kind of quickly moving through things and, and you know, having less information, you know, given to you uh, explicitly uh, is is a greater product of a lot more modern, particularly like art house uh, films and stuff. And uh, it, it doesn't always work for mm -hmm. me. I think that's a more of like a kind of personal style thing that like I'm like, mm, you know, I'd like a bit more time to sit here and, and soak in a bit more. Uh, you know, the movie it's is hard to get moving on quickly. In, I think. Um, it's hard to get really hooked into parts besides some of these characters that are kind of, you know, just by the side of the road. You like they're, they're very and temporary. Right, and it's not like the film doesn't give you enough. Like, but the like, like my issue with it was, I felt like, oh, we're only in these scenes for just long enough to convey this particular information that the, the director wants, and then we're on to the next scene. It's a completely different location. Uh, we haven't really indicated that we're going there. It's just, oh, we're gone. And and like I said, I think that is intentional with this film. I think the film wants to feel like it's moving from place to place very quickly because that's what you know the subject is as well. Uh, it, I just on like a personal level i found like uh oh, you know this didn't work for me as much in terms of a storytelling perspective even though i see the purpose behind it i think you're right that it always cuts too soon and that i'd feel better with more time spent in each shot um i 
at the same time, I feel like Chloe's out editing her own film is a strong statement for women, right? Like, uh, I don't think the editing is perfect, but uh, for a woman to direct and edit and, you know, have like the whole vision of a film is really extraordinary. And write, and, and she wrote it as and well. And she adapted it from the book. Um, it is also based on the book, so it's going off like lived experience. and Right, but the book itself is nonfiction, right. you know, and the, the character of Fern and whatnot. Like a lot of it, you can tell is really, and, and since you do employ a lot of, you know, real people, like I think the, the, the text of the book doesn't, isn't necessarily, like it's not a direct translation no. there. And a lot of this is a lot more conceived in, in the moment it feels like and whatnot. And uh, you've got your, your basic kind of, character you're, you're following and a little bit of structure but it really is a lot more loose which again is not inherently bad i think it's complementary to this you know the subject here but you know for for me at least personally i definitely was like ah you know i would have liked a, a little bit more uh you know in between something connecting it all a little bit more along the way it, just in terms of like scene structure like one. one feeding into the next i agree that it definitely needs like a through line. i mean i think that's all I, it would I, take I, to I, elevate it to like oh this is my favorite yeah. film of last year like i'm not i'm not saying it needs like a goal like yeah. we need to establish a very clear-cut goal in the beginning it's just more so like from the scene it to needs scene a movement issue like yeah, I, I didn't feel like it had strong transitions from one sequence to the next, and then that, that contributed to the film feeling like it had a kind of lengthy pacing to it. It's not that long no, of a film, but it, but feels, it, long. it, it feels a little longer than, than it is, and I think that was a little bit of a detriment I, to it. I but. think it's like the poster, too, right? Like, you have, like, these slivers of these license plates that are just, like, transposed, and it looks like hard cuts between them. Like, everything's chopped up in a way to make you feel something, I think, but... It was definitely, I, and I noticed it very early on. Like I, I paused the movie like eight movies, uh, eight, eight minutes mm -hmm. in, and I'm like, okay, I, and I, and I had to get a feel because I'm like, I know this sensation because like there's a lot of modern films that that have this kind of storytelling style, but I was trying to put my finger on it. And I'm like, how do I say this that doesn't just condemn modern film storytelling? I'm like, because I don't want to do that. So you're like, she's a modern filmmaker making a modern film for modern people in our modern society. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I, I do feel like it is, it is very modern in so many ways. Like, uh, because, like I said, the subject is very modern because it's about, you know, people existing in the fallout of the the great recession of 2008 yeah. and particularly in the shutdown of this entire city you know in like 2011 is the, the kind of opening gives us so there. the secondary thing that worries me is i think chloe Zhao tends to lean into kind of misery porn made by rich people <laughs> for poor people I, I think there's a weird part of it too where there's a conflict of interest with sending all these gifts and stuff to the press and and it really mm -hmm. does feel like I don't want to just call it misery porn, but there's definitely that aspect to the writer, which I really didn't love as much as this, which I was just like, this is uncomfortable. I don't like watching these people suffer as my entertainment. See, I, th I think that's interesting because I had a little bit of a, a different take there. I thought it was a, I thought it was a really good blend of both because especially like early on, and I know that the, the wasn't the intended times, but I'm kind of like, you know, what would be really awesome just getting in a van and living in the country and like making your way for your own life. Like there was definitely kind of like a romanticized element that I bought. See, that's into what I worry about though, is that it romanticizes but, the misery. Well, right. But I felt like at the same time, it never lost that thread of tragedy. Like the, when stuff happens where she, you know, her car breaks down or she's like, you know, she, uh, the guy gets really sick in the car and there's mm -hmm. like really not any help anywhere around. And she's always like having to scrounge for money, doing these really <laughs> shitty jobs, and like, and like in her mid sixties, like it's like, it's not glamorous, and there's definitely that appeal to it. So I think there's, 
like it had the nuance to it that I like that it's like it's not just miserable existence, but it's also not a pleasant one either. It's not one by choice, you know, and you're forced into these very grave, you know, circumstances and stuff. And even though you have outlets, you know, that you could fall back on, ultimately you don't want to sacrifice your, your agency, you know, yeah. your individualism. And you want to be able to, you know, own your own existence. You don't want to have to owe it to anyone else. And again, it's I think ultimately it keeps that outline of the failures of the system of the the capitalism in there that this is what put them in this scenario to begin with all of these people and and they're just having to make it on their own they've resigned themselves to say we have to look out for our own selves here as a as a kind of community and come together because capitalism has failed us there's parts of course where she i guess we should get into the amazon of it all where she has to go work yeah. those transitory <laughs> jobs um Obviously, it's not the intent of the movie to take down Amazon, but I feel like it could have done something with it. Uh, I mean, I, I think it does in, in its own way, and it shows case. For for one thing, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to just come and outright condemn Amazon right. when they have to like kind of sign off on being exhibited so much in the film. And they're in it. Like, yeah, like they're, they're, really they're everywhere it. there. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's no secret in anything. But at the same time, I get that sense. Like, the, the idea, uh, first of all, I'm like, all right. I understand how this idea of this, you know, camper program or whatever they call it is like a good thing, you know, in a presentation. Oh, we're giving jobs to these people. But like there is an inherently exploitative element to like you're employing, you know, people on a temporary basis, you know, probably for very you know, minimal you know, amounts of money here to serve, you know, to, to profit, you know, in your industry. That's already kind of messed up. And then the idea as well that it's very obvious that all of these people are in their like mid to, to late sixties yeah. or so <laughs> like they're all old people. Like my, my fiance went on a rabbit hole looking it up and actually like looked up their camper program. <laughs> and like, that's, that's literally them. Yeah, like, it it's is old people on, you know, like kind of all over the place, like the branding of it and the advertisement. So they know who they're appealing to with this and whatnot. And they know how, how kind of, uh, uh, exploitative that that kind of service is in a way it is like a lost way of life that we see like in our old westerns where you know like the old men still get to choose some kind of agency in their lives and they get to go you know move across the west in a way that's like what the the posters like conveying to like there's still opportunity in america and i mean we're being promised an american dream we can move around and chase it but um i, I think what the film underlines very strongly is that it's not a choice in this case yeah. like you know well there's that appeal like and because well, they outlined in a very really great scene i think at one point where she's like I, I you know like she suggested to go into early retirement to get her you know monthly payments or whatever and it's like i literally can't live off of this money this is not enough money for me to live on a regular basis uh you know so i have to work right. um and and that's kind of like the the fucked up thing, the the failings of the the system there, and why she's forced into this scenario because all you can do is afford to you know move around the country in a very small cramped vehicle here and take odd jobs wherever you can just to survive, just to scrape by. Yeah, um, I, it feels like she is given like opportunities later, of course, to like stay with like you know old family or whatever, and you know there are some options, but it feels it's very limited for her, and this is. I, I mean, once you kind of lost your partner, it almost feels like you almost need to go on a journey to, in a way, it feels like an mm -hmm. old vision quest of a movie and like exploring yourself in your final stages. Um, there's something beautiful about that, too. 
Yeah, I, I think there is an inherent beauty to the film, particularly when you get to see some of the uh, the great landscapes and stuff, um, you know, and, and that's captured uh, really well. And again, like I said, it's part of that balance of the, you know, the, the, the pros of this kind of lifestyle, but also the cons and such. Uh, but yeah, well, ultimately, I think it, under, it underlines. And like I said, it, you know, even though she does have those avenues that she could take as a support system that it's one of those things where you really shouldn't have to fall back on, on relatives and whatnot, like this idea that you need to, you know, you want to own the agency of your life, and that shouldn't be a sacrifice you have to make in a first world country like this. Um, we have the same cinematographer returning from uh, the writer, which I think is also the highlight there, Joshua James Richards, who really beautiful skies against landscapes, and like the dinosaur in the mountains, or her in the van, and just like the, the prairies behind mm-hmm. her. Uh, just a lot of beautiful American vistas there. I, I agree definitely in terms of the vistas, but uh, I did have a problem with the cinematography that kind of comes from that, and that's this choice of ultra-widescreen format. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might be seen as a bit more nitpicky by, by some people because, uh, you know, it's like a more specific thing about cinematography, which I don't always talk about. But uh, in this case, and in, in particularly with big widescreen formats uh, I, I tend to take issue even with older like cinemascope stuff and whatnot it always bugs me is that a lot of people don't know how to utilize the, the framing right and particularly when you want to use a lot of close-ups which uh, she does widescreen is there's a lot yeah that, like she yeah chloe Zhao really likes the the close-ups here in this film and uh ultra widescreen is not good for that <laughs> it, it ends up cutting off like a lot of the frame and you have lots of empty space on either side and uh, it, it, it's, it leads to a lot of uh, ill-framing. Like, it, it doesn't always look right there. So it's really good for capturing vistas and wide things, but generally in compositions with a widescreen format, you want to take a couple steps back and, and use a bit more and, you know, uh, organize. Usually you want to fill that space, and when you want to move in close, it's just not a good format to do that with. So I'm like, I don't know that this was the best choice for this kind of film particularly with your you know choice of direction and framing and you think of like the closed off interiors and how close those spaces are too heavy there's a lot of narrow spaces and shots in this movie and it's not like you can't get great vistas in a smaller format in a in a more you know one you know if you look at even like the you know old westerns and stuff they're they're really great at distributing that in the old four by three formats but uh you know i understand the appeal of going ultra widescreen but it, it has a lot greater drawbacks that I think a lot of filmmakers don't consider necessarily before going forward with it. Uh, and, and, and this is a case where I'm like, ah, oh, it, it ended up distracting me a lot, especially in like close-up sequences and stuff. I'm like, it, you're only seeing like half the face here. Yeah, there are a few that are just, you know, it's it's not a full picture. <laughs> I agree. Uh, it's not something that really, that I really needled in on the review or anything, but yeah, it's no, there. No, no, th- sure. those were like... Th- that and like I said, the the pacing kind of like story structure stuff. Those were like the the big takeaways that I found like kind of held me back from it. And the problem was is that they were constant problems yeah. because they're throughout the entire film. So they just kind of built up so so much. They weren't like debilitating problems for the story uh, or, or for the film itself. It's just that they they were so constant and so prevalent that it just it, it was very obviously uh, issues to me that just kept cropping up. For me, it's just like, oh, that's the thing I like. I like this, like, really chopped up slices of life kind of thing where it, it doesn't, like, follow any coherent plotting. So that part I like, but also the camera work. Like you say, outside the vistas, it doesn't make sense for the for the framing. So yeah. I agree. Again, like, a, a lot of the vista stuff looks really great. Yeah, I, astounding. I particularly love yeah. the... 
yeah, lo loved a lot of the sequences. Again, when you use the widescreen format to shoot things wide, it looks great. <laughs> it's no surprise. But when you use a lot of close-ups, it's not going to work as well. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's pretty good coverage of Nomadland. I I'm glad we did get to it. Yeah, I'm glad too. I'm glad that you, uh, you know, kind of coerced me into to watching it. Uh, Is it one of our first <laughs> women directors on the on the show? Uh, we haven't done oh, many. Oh no, we've had. Ugh, oh, uh, that might be the. We haven't key. done very know, many, like and we, we should probably do some more. Is more of the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly again, like uh, even some classics. I guess that's. Not? That's that's the problem with like you know giving me so much leeway with all these old Hollywood films is that I, I'm generally going to gravitate around <laughs> old like white the 99 percent yes. of male, yeah who who directed things but you know uh, I'm not opposed to branching out more I'm glad you brought this one to me I enjoyed it greatly uh, and I thought it was really uh you know a, a very relevant film for a lot of the struggles and stuff and I thought that the the emotions that it conveyed were very strong I think it's really deep and resonant and it ties into i wouldn't really call it like a formal western obviously but it ties into things i like about westerns i'd say um sure sure again like the, the nomadic aspect of it for sure you know i definitely see that uh resonance there and uh i know you're a big fan of chloe Zhao ever since yeah. uh the well, writer no, i wouldn't and, say uh, i am i'd say a lot of people are and i was like uh i was oh. a little bit like uh the writer's kind of weak but beautiful and oh i thought i thought you thought no, it was great i no, thought i remember I, that you've mentioned it a i thought few it was times, fine but <laughs> Okay, uh, but I thought this was even better than the writer. I thought the writer was good, basically good. I think I'm more where you are with Nomadland on the writer. I was like, uh, this doesn't really do much for me, but it is gorgeous. Oh, I, I think it did a lot. I, I think it's the opposite problem okay. is that like I, I, I emotionally I felt a lot of things here, but I like, just thought the writer I, I was had... kind of misery porn. <laughs> like like I was saying, <laughs> kind of this is in some ways. That yeah, it made me uncomfortable. I wonder if. I wonder if uh, the Eternals or Dracula is going to be equally as misery porn. <laughs> I, I think that's my greatest hope for Marvel is that it could be misery porn. I think that's the only good way it could go. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of the weird thing. I'll be I'll be interested to see how her trajectory <laughs> as a director goes. Coming off of these two and then going into a Marvel movie and a Universal film about Dracula, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting career choice. All right, yeah. let's see how it goes. I mean, Nomadland. I, you know, it wasn't like. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite movies the last year. It was in like my top ten, so uh, I yeah, I did good. like it a lot. It, you know, it, it's close to the top. I'd say to the top ten of the movies I watched last sure. year too. Granted, I still didn't watch ten movies of the yet ten from you last watched, year, but definitely in those ten. <laughs> yeah, it's probably high up. I would yeah. say I liked it uh, quite a bit, and I thought it was very good. And I think. Uh, yeah, you know, probably deserved its Golden Globe win. Uh, maybe not as much as like First Cow, based on what you said about it. But uh, I guess we'll get around to that one eventually too. And you know, well, this one was. We I do want to say this one was nice because I got my screener while I was out at the cabin. Um, the girls had mostly gone to sleep. They were up there going to sleep in the loft, and I was just down there by a fire. And I had the door open. It was like you know, a little breeze coming through and by the fire, and I just had like the sounds of like bats out there and like the wilderness, and I was like so absorbed. And, that's the kind of memory you also don't forget. So Nomadland stuck yeah. with me. It's like a unique, perfectly fitting experience in the wilderness. Yeah, see, there you go again. It's, it's often more about the environment in which you watch something in the circumstances than it is the movie itself. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think we've done pretty good coverage of it. Um, and for our next show, I'll see you down the road, as they say. Yeah, uh, our, our next show, which uh, will be uh, an actual Western now. It's been a little bit, right? Real... Like, yeah. like a genuine Western. Yeah, we haven't done one this year, have we? 
Yeah. Uh, no, no, we did uh, Unforgiven oh. earlier this year, but we haven't done anything since then. That was like in January, okay. right? Uh, we're doing a more traditional <clears throat> old school Western again. Yeah, sort of old school, but not quite traditional. It's a little different from 1960. Westerns were changing at this point. We're doing, uh, since Criterion added their collection of uh, black cowboys, uh, I, I'm excited to talk about one that I've been telling you to watch for a long, long time now, which is John Ford's uh, Sergeant Rutledge, uh, which stars uh, Woody Strode. Uh, and I, I think we talked about him briefly in like our Once Upon a Time in the West episode, but uh, I'll have plenty to say because I love sorry, uh, I love uh, Woody Strode, and, and this is probably his like most prominent and you know important role. Yes, yeah, Strode's great, so I'm excited to get a, a view of this. And... Yeah, so uh, uh, that will be very exciting. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at The Twin Geeks, and individually, at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema.